Hello and welcome to another episode of That Blind Lads podcast and a brand new episode of Journeys. Today, my guest is Liam O'Dell. Liam, how the devil are you? <laughs> I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's uh, a pleasure to be on. So thank you very much for, for inviting me. No problem. Thank you for coming on and uh, taking and time out you? on your... your and how are you? I feel like that, that was usually I ask the other person how they are after, after they've asked me how I am. So uh, how, how are you doing? <laughs> I, I am fine. I've just, just finished uh, a day at college because um, apparently here at RNC, bank holidays don't exist. Um, oh, okay. So you just you just just get on with it, apparently. Oh, but uh, yeah, f- thank you for coming <laughs> and taking time out your bank holiday Monday to to come on and, and talk to myself about yourself. So with yeah. all my guests, I like to go back to the beginning, basically, or wherever the beginning is to you, whether that be last week or when you was born. It's literally <laughs> down to you, wherever you feel it gives us the best image of yourself. So <laughs> the stage is yours. Well, my mum likes my dad very much. And no, 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 no. Um, no, I um I think well I've always kind of started off with um in terms of my journey, at least in the world of activism, it really kicked off for me when I think I was about 13 or 15. Um it's, it's still a blur that, that time that I don't know the exact age, although I, it was probably in like my early teens when I had had a hearing test. Um, and I, I'll describe what that's like, although I have a feeling some people might know, some people might not. But it's um, mm-hmm. it's basically where you put, in, put on uh, a pair of headphones, you're in a, basically a soundproof room or as soundproof as they can get it. Um, and you've got like a, a buzzer or a button in front of you. And basically it's, it's, it's as simple as every time you hear a, um, a beep or a warble or any sort of sound that you've been asked to keep an eye out for or an ear out for, like, if that's the saying. Um, and yeah, every time you hear it, you, pre- you, you, you press the button and then as a result, the sound changes in frequency, it changes in... Um, in uh, volume, intonation, all these different things. I think pitch is as well another one. Um, and as a result yeah. of that, um, once that test had finished, they said, I think you might benefit from having hearing aids. Now, at that time, I was about, I was a teenager. I was a spotty teenager. I had glasses on my face. I had, uh, like I said, spots, acne. I was very self-conscious. And the idea of having two behind the hear, behind the ear hearing aids, which are like the ones that hook over, well, hook over behind your ear, mm-hmm. behind your ear. Um, they're the ones which have tubes on them rather than something that's uh, a bit more discreet. So I, I was worried that I was gonna get asked a lot of questions about it when when I, I maybe wasn't as confident with my own deaf, deaf identity as I should have been. Um, so at that point I was kind of growing my hair out and big bushy hair to really kind of hide it as best as I could. But um, it wasn't that long before I, I was kind of trying to find other people that were in a similar position to myself. I think that happens, I think that happens to 
um, to anyone that is in, in a situation that in that moment, because I'm not going to deny the fact that there are periods in a deaf person's kind of journey, if you like, which aren't always sunshine and lollipops. You know, it's it, it's it's one thing challenging um, inspiration porn and the um, the kind of general media portrayal of disability being so inspiring and so wonderful and so magical. And it's another thing um, pointing out that bad moments can happen without framing it as um, as like something to despair or pity. It's a tough line to cross um, because you want, obviously want to celebrate your identity, but also don't want to um, kind of sensationalize it. You have to be just as, as real as you can be. Um, but no, I digress. So I was, I was, yeah, I was, um, I think like anyone, I was trying to find other people that were in the same position as me to really just kind of, well, process it really and, and try and, uh, try and get some questions answered, but also just, I don't know, I think, I don't know whether I, at the moment, at that time I was, um, trying to find some confidence, but I think I was certainly trying to um, just have a, a sounding board, I suppose, just to kind of bounce, bounce some thoughts off. And, and that came in two ways or two avenues. And one of them was to, was, um, to kind of reach out to a local deaf charity, local deaf club. Um, they held like signing cafe sessions or like deaf Okay. Um, meetups at like a local pub um, and those were nice just opportunities to hang out um, over coffee over a, uh, a beverage um, although I don't drink so it's it's often the underwhelming seven up or sprite um, and <laughs> yeah just uh, just kind of chat it through but then also around that time um yeah, like around that in that in that kind of teenage years. This was when I was sixteen, so I don't think it was that long um, after being told I needed hearing aids that um, I was invited to be on the National Deaf Children's Society's Youth Advisory Board, which is a lot of letters. And if you want to abbreviate that, that's uh, NDCSYAB. Um, but um, that was like a group of about. Um, 18 deaf young people, including myself. Um, and they are essentially, and it's still going, it's just um, different deaf people join it um, for like a two year period. Um, and they basically, as, as the name suggests, they basically advise the charity on, on different things, whether it comes uh, in terms of mostly campaigning, but also um, kind of any sort of work that they need the, um, advice or feedback from deaf young people themselves that's kind of the group that they can go and consult so that was an interesting experience because I went into that as a at the time mildly deaf um, person I say mildly deaf person because um, that was what the the hearing tests came back as but Right now, my hearing aids that I'm wearing are private. They're, they're not um, NHS anymore. And I got those through a, a review that I did um, for a, a, a kind of tech outlet and they let me keep them afterwards. So um, 
yeah, I've, I've, they're not, I haven't got the same hearing aids now, but when I, and as a result of that, they did a more advanced test because obviously they're private and they can, they can do that. And, and the, the, the test came back saying, I actually have a more moderate to severe hearing, uh, hearing loss or deafness, which is what I, I now use. But at the time I was mildly deaf um, and I still am communicating orally as I was at the time. So sign language to me was something that I, I was aware of, of course. Um, mm. You know, I, 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 I'd, you know, just like I think anyone, we've, we've seen videos around where um, there's a sign language interpreter at the bottom of the screen interpreting what's being said. But as for my knowledge of that, it was next to nothing. And I remember the kind of embarrassment that I felt and the shame, I think, to an extent, of going to the first residential. So as part of that board, there were four. I went to the first one and I think I was literally writing notes on pieces of paper and um, really just having to, having to use written communication because I just didn't know anything. And that was, that was a wake up call for me. Um, and I knew, that, I knew that I needed to get better at that. And, but then at the same time, being around a group of other deaf young people like me, it did it did the world a good. Um, and I think mm. for anyone listening that's that's kind of got a new diagnosis or has had a new diagnosis recently and is kind of, I don't know, struggling to come to terms with that or is really wondering like how, how you kind of build upon that or what the next steps are. It's definitely finding your own community um, who can support you and, um, kind of answer any questions you have. I was lucky to have that with the YAB. Um, I, I was also very lucky to have it later on in life when I got a diagnosis of autism last year. Um, I, was, I was diagnosed autistic last year. And after sharing it on Twitter, I was flooded with support. So it is out there. There are people out there that are willing to kind of help you out because, you know, we're all in, all in this together as uh, um, uh, High School Musical says. Um, <laughs> I, I was like, where's that from? High School Musical. I was going to say Justin Bieber, but they're, they're just as bad. High School Musical, uh, Justin Bieber, they're just as bad. But I, 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 I digress. Um, so I, yeah, so I, I then kind of in between the residentials, because they were only like every two months or so. So I, I had a bit of time to really um, practice and learn stuff outside of those residentials and over the four residentials that there were I was learning more and more so mm. I could kind of learn the odd phrase by the second third residential I was um I was kind of managing to hold the conversation and then in the fourth residential I was um well like I said I was I was able to hold the conversation I'm not fluent right now I'm not I'm not um able to sign every single word there is in the British Sign Language, like dictionary as, as it were. Um, but I can, I can definitely hold a conversation and I can, you know, I can kind of navigate a conversation with my limited knowledge. And if you compare where I was on the fourth residential, where I think I remember strongly playing a game that was all in sign language and I was signing to people and to compare that to the first residential where I was just, I, I, I knew next to nothing. That mm. was, that was, that was quite something. And through that as well. Um, so there, so through that, there was the growing, there was the growth in confidence, but there was also 
um, this kind of introduction to the world of campaigning. Because when I heard, when I heard um, talk about campaigning, especially during that um, that that um, youth advisory board, um, that time I was on the board, I thought, oh, okay, campaigning. I, I, I'm not really engaged with it before. I'm a bit reluctant to do so because campaigning. I thought at the time was only extended to holding up placards, holding up pitchforks and demanding that the government does something about something, which, uh, and that as a result of doing that, because protests are, um, are massively inconvenient and often patrolled by police, I'd get arrested, which is, is just, it, it was a very misinformed view of, of campaigning in a disability sense. Um, but through what I was doing with that charity and kind of the, the, um, the experiences that were being shared amongst ourselves as deaf young people, um, I, really, I really kind of grew into that side of campaigning. I found it particularly attractive. I thought, oh, okay, there's, there's issues that I've got here. There's things that are not accessible to me. There are uh, government ministers that have said silly things on the record that I want to challenge them about. Um, so I, I want to do more about that. And, and this was also at the time that I wanted to be, or I was kind of working through education towards the point where those inevitable questions of, right, okay, what do you want to do for a career start coming up? And I've always been... Um, I've always been like a huge, massive fan of um, writing, reading, um, literature, uh, kind of English was the subject at school I really gravitated towards. So if you ask me then what I wanted to do as a career, it was anything that was a, an extension of that. I wanted to uh, be an author for a long, for a long time, um, and I still do. And fortunately, uh, and I'll come on to this later, but fortunately, I was um, I was recently offered a book deal, so I, that is becoming a, an eventuality, which is absolutely mind blowing. Still, um, a few months after I I uh, announced it, a few months actually, no, I think it was a few weeks. Um, so it still hasn't quite sunk it, sunk in. Um, but that was always a dream. But then I realised that the process of sending over manuscripts and waiting patiently for it to come back with uh, tea stains all over it and a, uh, a, a quickly written letter from an agent saying sorry not for us I thought that wasn't really a sustainable career to go into um, but journalism was was definitely an extension of that it was you know um, it was writing stories again but it was real life stories and it was platforming um, underrepresented groups that haven't really had their stories told on main mainstream platforms before uh, and that kind of really connected with the sort of uh, ideas and attitudes that I was learning during that time on, on the board. Um, and so it, it, it then came the massive kind of snowball effect, if you like, because towards my, the end of my time on the board, so we're now talking, so I started the board in 2014, um, and, or I was, began as a member of the board in 2014. And then my time ended on the board just towards the end of 2015. And at that time, actually, I was just about to start university. And one of the last things that I did with the board was um, in October 2015, um, going to 
Conservative Party conference. Now, no, 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 no. Before anyone switches off this podcast and decides not to listen any further, quick disclaimer, I am not a Tory. I'm not a Conservative voter. I, I am quite the opposite. I, I am left-leaning and all that sort of stuff. And, and so as I walked into, and this was when it was held in Manchester, as I walked into, into the, the conference uh, entrance or where security was and you had to go through, I just heard people booing at me. And I was like, look, look, guys, guys I'm, not, I'm not even a politician. I'm not even, <laughs> I'm not anyone that's, I am just a person from a humble person from a disability charity, having a couple, a couple of meetings with Tory MPs asking them to be a bit better um, for, dis- for disabled people, but specifically deaf people and deaf children. Or, or, or less worse. Yes, yes, please just, <laughs> yeah, please just be a little bit kinder to us. Um, but no, it was, a, that was an interesting experience because as a result of that, um, as a result of that, one of the meetings that I had was with the then Minister for Disabled People, Justin Tomlinson. Justin Tomlinson, uh, was Minister for Disabled People at the time, but then also he recently came back as Minister. Um, and then I think when Boris Johnson did a reshuffle sometime last year, um, Chloe Smith is now um, is now the incumbent. Um, but at the time, um, I had just been a month into my um, studies uh, doing journalism at the University of Lincoln, which is one of the best, it was the best three years that I had um, studying on that course. Um, and I was, you know, learning shorthand and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, and I had the kind of spring in my step that comes with being a, uh, a uh, kind of student journalist, you know, the, 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 a little bit cocky, I won't, I, I won't lie. Um, and so I, I was sat opposite Justin Tomlinson and I, I, I referred to a comment that he gave um, he gave not long um, before that meeting to the British Deaf Association, where he basically said, oh, Parliament hasn't really got an appetite for um, legalising or, or giving legal recognition to British Sign Language. Now, when you think about it, that's, I, I still look back on that and I think, wow, how time has changed or how, yeah. how, how, how the, uh, the tables have turned because, um, you know, that was, that was 2015. And now all of a sudden, seven years later, um, after Labour MP Rosa Cooper introduced the bill last year, and it's then, uh, it then had its second reading in January and it's progressed to royal assent just last month. All throughout that time, the government quickly jumped on it, realised that it was a massive uh, opportunity to get them some good brownie points. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the Minister for Disabled People now, Chloe Smith, as I said, it was on, was on board on it, on board with it completely. And I, I think I said it when I was reporting on it. I just thought, you know, let's not forget that, guys, that seven years ago and indeed, you know, in, in the years between 2015 and 2022, the government hasn't always been, you know, completely supportive of, well, for starters, disability. They never have. Um, not at least under the Conservative government, um, but uh, you know, in the you know, in those years prior, there's been issues with access to work. There's been issues with all of these other things. We, we can't just, uh, as much as we'd like to, kind of celebrate the government finally listening to us. Um, we can a little bit, but let's not be let's not be too 
celebratory because you know years prior they were they were completely batting aside our issue but after after challenging justin tomlinson on that and i'm, I'm annoyed i didn't get the transcript afterwards because there was a, uh, there was a uh, a live captioner or live subtitle that was writing down what was being said and i i asked the charity i said oh i'd love to i'd love to get a transcript of what he said just so i can refer back to it but unfortunately uh unfortunately that wasn't possible um but um no he, he was really kind of I think taken aback by, by by the questioning, and at the end of it, he was he, we you know we we finished having our more kind of formal meeting, and it was the kind of post discussion chat, and he was we got talking, and he was like, so what do you so what are you doing at the moment? And I was like, oh okay, so I'm, I've just started journalism, uh, studying journalism at the University of Lincoln. I'm about a month into my into my studies, all that sort of stuff, mm-hmm. and he was and he was like, oh okay, well how about I'll you know I'll look into it but how about uh I see about getting two days work experience at the press office at the department for work and pensions um and that that was that was a, a fascinating experience not least because um <laughs> the the two days that I had uh, I don't know why it was it wasn't a full week, but I I I I wouldn't I wouldn't criticize the DWP for only giving me two days because they're the DWP. They don't necessarily have time to 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 keep an eye on a a, a, a spectacled young journalist for a whole week. When as I started on those on those two days, I think it was actually towards the end of that week rather than the start. Uh, so Ian Duncan Smith, then the uh, working pension secretary resigned uh, I, can't, I think he was resigning over disability stuff so I, I I was joining two days work experience on the day um or, or like the kind of the, the 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 start of the week or that week after Sir Ian Duncan Smith had resigned as, as the secretary so that was a, that was a fun time working in that, the West was that there. perfect timing or was that like, <laughs> Um, so, so yeah, so I, I was kind of drafting, um, thankfully I was doing a lot, a lot of the work, um, more with the Minister for Disabled People, Justin Tomlinson. So that was, that was nice to, to, um, to, to kind of work on that, that remit because obviously disability is, is, it was something at the time that I knew a fair bit about. And, um, Mm. yeah, so I did those, I did those two, but then after those two days, it really kind of, snowballed into a bunch of other things. Um, I was, you know, the university was hammering in the fact that work experience was vital for this sort of, um, this sort of career. Um, I I just got into the habit of applying to places for work experience. And so it really just kind of snowballed from there. I was getting placements at Sky News, at uh, local papers in Lincoln, uh, or like local outlets even. Um, I think I eventually, at one point, which was wonderful, I went all the way to Bristol. Um, I'm from Bedfordshire, which is kind of East Anglia, um, kind of near Milton Keynes, that sort of area. So it was, it was a bit of a bit of a long train journey, but it was two excellent weeks down in Bristol with BBCC here, which is their deaf magazine programme. Um, so I just had kind of more and more work experience that was coming up, um, which really put me in good stead. Um, and it was actually um, on top of all of that, uh, an outlet that I was writing for at the time, the Limping Chicken, 
which is a specialist deaf news website. I've been I've been writing for like the odd piece for them here and there. Uh, after someone mentioned them during the YAB, they were like, have, "Have you heard of Limping Chicken?" I was like, um, "No, but I would probably recommend that they go and see a vet." Um, until I realised actually what they were talking about was um, the name of a specialist publication um, that reports on on deaf issues. And so I was writing for them for, for a few, uh, for like the odd piece here and there, as I say. But I, I think it was around 2016, 2017, they asked me if I could write for them more regularly. So that was, that was kind of going on at the same time as well. And then I, at the end of those three years, I was, you know, I'd, I'd had my stint in student journalism, uh, running a student newspaper, but I graduated. Um, and after, after that, I had a few, uh, months in in the charity sector. Actually, that's a lie. I had about a year in the charity sector um, before I decided that it was it was time for me to um, to move into pursuing pursuing freelancing full time. It was funny actually because I left left that that charity sector job in October 2019. So I graduated and, and finished in September 2018. Got a charity job, um, I think, in about June, June 2018. So that kind of gap where you've finished your studies, waited to, to graduate. Uh, did that for a year, finished in October 2019. And I had a few months of not getting any work. And it was getting a bit scary because my parents were saying, look, you kind of need to bring in some income here. You might need to return to the world of retail, um, which, don't get me wrong, I, I had a great time in, in working in, re in retail and meeting people and um, just kind of chatting away as I scanned their item. It was it was it was it was a job that was that was perfectly fine. It just made it just meant I could chat to people and get paid for it, which is all right. Um, but it wasn't something I wanted to do for the rest of my life or something I, did, I wanted to get kind of roped back into. And it all um, it all kind of it all unfolded really nicely for me in January 2020, which is an excellent year to to really kind of start doing freelancing <laughs> and stuff like that, you know, because of the the uh, health crisis that shall not be named. Um, but um, at the start of that year, I had like a few people reach out with freelancing stuff. Um, but it was really, um, but it was, I think, yeah, no, it was, it was at that time that I also got, I think it was that year, or it was maybe the year after, but it was around, it was around that time that I had some more freelance work. So that was, I was helping out charities with this time on a more freelance basis with kind of campaigning and copywriting. Um, and then soon enough, out of nowhere, um, I got an email asking if I wanted to do a trial shift for the Indy 100 which is um, which is kind of like a, a, a sister site of The Independent. They kind of do the trending news stories. So if something's trending on, on social media, we're the ones that kind of explain it and then also show a few of the memes and go, ha ha, isn't this funny? Um, that's, that's kind of, that was kind of the job that I, I did then. And I still do it now. It's, it's one of my, it's one of the freelance jobs that I, I continue to do. And I, I, I love it because it's, it's, it's really kind of offbeat news. You can have a bit of fun with it and it's, uh, it's just it's just a great uh, a great um, a great shift to do. So I was doing that, and then uh, the independent offered me some work with their video team, kind of writing some copy for them. 
Uh, and then the kind of other things, other things kind of moved along, um, getting jobs now or shifts at the Metro, metro.co.uk, and all of these different things. But I think what's more interesting in the context of this podcast is, is how that then kind of all of this kind of journalism work really um, really helped me shine a light on disability issues. And for me, I owe so much of that to the Limpid Chicken um, and Charlie, Charlie Swinburne, the editor, um, because there were a few things that were happening around that time as well that um, I was covering for the Limpid Chicken. So obviously 2020 um, pandemic, kicked off there were obviously some things that had happened that were affecting the um excuse me uh, that were affecting the uh deaf community uh and i was kind of exploring a handful of them you know you had the mental health crisis in which deaf people are uh, according to a statistic that's often cited i think they're twice as likely or almost twice as likely to uh, experience a mental health issue or mental health problem uh, compared to hearing people. Um, so that was obviously an issue I wanted to explore. Uh, you had deafblind people who um, use tactile sign language to communicate. So that's often through touch. And obviously we were trying to socially distance during that time. So how could people communicate? Did they have to put their health at risk in order to communicate with people? Um, was another sort of uh, issue that I was exploring. But one that also came to light was the fact that our UK government, uh, despite the Welsh government, the Scottish government, the Northern Irish government, uh, other, other governments in other countries or presidencies or whatever, were able to, to provide British Sign Language interpretation of their coronavirus briefings. But for some weird reason, um, the UK government was just flat out refusing to do it. Um, they, their argument, eventually after some petitions and stuff, draw attention to the issue, um, was basically them just saying, oh, well, Downing Street is a very limited space. Um, and there is, and we have this one room, which is very tight and cozy. And if we're trying to socially distance, that's not possible for uh, us to have an interpreter in that room and adhere to social distancing, which is, it was ridiculous. Um, mm. Especially when you consider the fact that um, as, the Women in Equalities Select Committee Chair Caroline Noakes said at one point during a kind of uh, panel discussion she was involved with, it was just the fact that she knows Downing Street, she knows what it's like. If that room was too tiny, get a bigger room. That's, <laughs> that's, that's all you need. And, you know, we didn't notice at the time, but we know it now. There were a few little parties on Downing Street, and I'm sure there were bigger rooms than the one that we saw in the number 10 briefing room <laughs> that, yeah. that, um, that would have indicated that they could have moved to a bigger space. And then obviously the stuff that happened with Dominic Cummings, where he gave a statement in the Rose Garden. It, it just, there was just so many things where the government's argument was slowly um, collapsing and crumbling before them. And the, the, the arguments and the justifications they were giving just didn't uh, just didn't stand up to scrutiny. Um, mm. So I was I was really diving into that and really trying to get as much of the kind of background info as I can. And one of them, um, which I particularly, which was particularly eye opening, but also particularly proud of, 
was that um, I won't bore you in the legalities, but with the Equality Act, which obviously underpins a lot of disability disability rights here in the UK, um, there is there is um, with regards to public policy, you have to have demonstrated that you have kind of considered the the duties under the Equality Act that you considered disabled people that sort of thing. And one of the ways that you can prove that, so one of the ways you can demonstrate you've considered those, those issues is through an equality impact assessment. That isn't necessary, it's not something you have to do, but it is just a nice little bit of paperwork that a public body can fill out to say, hey, look, we've, we've done it, we've done the thing, um, except, uh, and this is where it got really interesting, um, I was liaising quite closely with the lawyers who are considering taking legal action against the government. Uh, they did, and I'll come to that in a second. But they had asked the cabinet office, hey, I, we'd like to get a copy of this equality impact assessment, please. Um, the cabinet office refused. They said it would be disproportionate to do so. It wouldn't be appropriate, wouldn't be wise, all of those sort of kind of words or attitudes towards it being disclosed. Um, and one of the many things that's, uh, or one of the main pieces of legislation that I absolutely love as a journalist is the Freedom of Information Act. And it's not even exclusive, exclusive to journalists. Anyone, if they want to, can approach a public body that doesn't necessarily have to be a government body. It could be the NHS, it could be, uh, it could be um, universities, any sort of kind of public institution. You can approach them and say, I'd like to receive some information or find out what information you have about this particular subject. Um, and in this case, you know, sometimes they might refuse that request. They have a few um, exemptions that they can apply. But for this one, they, they responded plain and simple after I said, I would like to receive a copy of the impact assessment. They said, oh, um, we've had a little look at our records and there isn't a document that matches the one that you've asked for. So just to kind of give you an idea of what that means, the lawyers that were representing deaf people who were going to file a legal challenge against the government, um, those lawyers had asked the cabinet office for an equality impact assessment that the cabinet office said would be disproportionate to release only for me to ask the cabinet office in a freedom of information request for a copy of that document only to be told by the cabinet office that that document doesn't exist. So they essentially lied or misled a, a bunch of lawyers, which is ridiculous. Um, so that was that was something I was kind of digging into. And then eventually we had the court case um, and the, the UK government was found to have breached the Equality Act on two occasions um, where they didn't provide any interpretation at all, um, regardless of it being on BBC One or on BBC or whatever no interpretation whatsoever of the coronavirus data briefings. So there weren't the briefings where Boris Johnson was there or any of the, any of the uh, government ministers, cabinet ministers. Um, these were the ones chaired by the scientists um, and they were found to be in breach of the Equality Act for not providing those interpreters. Wasn't there um, also a thing that, did someone say within the government that, oh, there's sign language at, at one o'clock in the morning? Was that a... Was that something someone said as if like saying all oh, deaf people are awake <laughs> in the early hours of the morning? Um, they said a whole load of, of, of uh, absolutely wild things in the 
in the kind of court hearing, I think they were saying a few things like, um, oh, it was really short notice. So they were really implying that it was like last minute. Um, and again, you know, ministers, um, both from, the own, from their own party as well, were just saying that is ridiculous. And, mm. um, you know, I've, I've booked interpreters a lot quicker than that at the drop of a hat. And it's been fine. It's been manageable. You know, it's not an excuse to say, oh, we only had insert X amount of time here because it can be done. And I'd like to think that there would be a few interpreters that would understand the importance of the job and would jump at the chance of interpreting that information, vital information for the deaf community. Mm. Um, and then I think there was also some other things in the court hearing, I think. So the court case was brought forward by a lady named Katie uh, she's known online as Katie Redstar or Katie J Redstar. Um, and she, she is, uh, if I remember rightly from, from what I reported on at the time, she is um, dyslexic and I think she's also a writer or she does a lot of, uh, I think she's also, yeah, she's also an actress as well, I think. And um, the government was, was insistent. They were saying, well, um, interp uh, sil uh, subtitles are available. Why can't they just watch subtitles? And um, the argument that was being made by the, by the lawyers, and rightly so, is that subtitles are, especially when it's live, are like seconds behind, they're delayed, they sometimes come with errors. And in the case of Katie, uh, she's dyslexic. Um, mm. And the argument that the, the government lawyers had put back was, oh, well, she's an author, she's an actress, she can read English, um, so why can't she use subtitles? Um, which, it, basically, they were doubting her, her, her disability and, and her, her ability as a disabled person, which is just outrageous. Um, unsurprising, mm. but outrageous. Um, and, um, and obviously, just to be clear as well, because I, I had so many people, whenever I was campaigning about it myself, um, or highlighting this issue, they were just saying, oh, well, why can't you just switch on the subtitles? To be clear, subtitles, yeah, they're great. Subtitles are fantastic. Uh, deaf people can and do, myself included, benefit from subtitles. But subtitles are written in English. And if your first language is sign language, British sign language, which has a completely different grammatical structure to English, um, for example, British Sign Language, if you were to sign where do you live in British Sign Language, it wouldn't be where do you live, it would be you live where. Uh, the grammar right. is completely different. And so to, so reading text in a second language isn't as accessible as it would have been if that information was interpreted in British Sign Language. Um, so yeah, there was, there was a whole load of misconceptions and errors in that, in that court case and that judgment. Thankfully, they were found to have breached the Equality Act. And as a result of that coverage, I would later go on to receive the Young Freelancer Award from the Association of Independent, uh, pub uh, Independent Publishers and the Self-Employed, or IPSI for short. Um, and as I said, when I accepted that award, and I want to stress again now, that award is as much the deaf communities as it is mine. Um, and I have to thank not only the Limping Chicken for giving me the platform to report on it, but also, um, but also um, Lynn Stewart-Taylor, who was the person that founded the campaign that drew attention to the issue called Where is the Interpreter? Um, which is still ongoing, by the way. I think there's, there's still um, some kind of 
prequel action documents that are being handed to the cabinet office about the fact that they're still not providing interpretation for some of their, their press conferences in that new room. So obviously now they're doing it in number nine, which is next door. Um, and again, no equality impact assessment for that one. Um, interestingly though, when they went to court um, and were trying to defend themselves, um, an equality impact assessment was kind of presented at court, um, justifying their need to uh, not provide an interpreter, which was oddly, oddly convenient. Um, but, uh, but no, that, that number 10 room, and it didn't even have a, have a ramp for wheelchair access. And uh, as, as, uh, as one of my friend Ellen Jones said, when uh, I think she was interviewed by uh, either the Cambridge or Oxford Union, she said, you, you've, you've built ableism into your infrastructure because what you're essentially saying is, okay, fine. Right now we haven't got any um, disabled uh, wheelchair users in, in the cabinet. That's a shame, that's ridiculous. But what you're saying with that is, okay, they're not in the cabinet now, but you're saying that there won't ever be a need for that ramp to be there. And you're, you're essentially implying that we won't ever have a disabled government minister, which I dread to think that will, that will, that will always be the case. I hope it's not going to be the case. And I'd like to think it wouldn't be the case that we wouldn't, wouldn't ever have um, a, 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 a disabled wheelchair using government minister. Um, so... All of that, all of that shambles. I was, I was reporting on, but then also on top of all of that, um, there were some kind of freelance commissions that I was, I was really trying to push myself towards getting. So, in that time since I have uh, written for the likes of the Verge, which is a tech outlet in the U.S., I've written for the Guardian, the BBC. Uh, have I been, yes, I have written for the BBC, um, <laughs> uh, Empire Magazine <laughs> more recently. All of these other different places, I, I did a presentation, oh sorry, I did a report even for Channel 5 News recently for the British Sign Language Bill. Um, and yeah, just a whole load of different places. And I'm very fortunate now that I have this kind of platform to be able to draw attention to deaf issues. And I'm kind of I'm kind of able to shine a light on it. Um, of course. Yes understanding of the fact that there might be the occasional story that comes up where I'm not the best person to speak on it. Obviously, if there's issues relating to uh, kind of subcultures within the deaf community of which I'm not part, I will hand, hand over the mic and anyone should do that uh, in, in any circumstance. Um, and especially when people came to me asking if I could speak on the British Sign Language Bill and its progress um as an interviewee and I, I had to turn it down because i'm not a i'm not a native sign language user i don't use it as a first language um obviously as i'm as i'm talking to you now um and so i i i always try to defer uh onto sign language users when that opportunity came by um but yeah no i'm, I'm very fortunate for the position i have now and there are a few other stories as well um that i've been fortunate to cover i did one where youtube despite so many people saying don't remove this feature decided to completely kill off a kind of community captions uh tool which would allow videos to be made accessible by by viewers of a channel so cha uh, those viewers could go into a video and add the captions themselves for the benefit of other people uh that was shut down my reporting on that led to trending hashtags led to uh, countless news articles um, and petitions being set up. 
So there's been a few stories and like exclusive that I've been writing on ever since. And then now I've been reporting a lot on um, on Spectrum 10K, which is a University of Cambridge research study um, that's come under fire from the autistic community um, over research which the community feels amounts to eugenics, because it's all about, um, excuse me, I'm just going to get a drink. It, um, it asks autistic children and autistic adults for, um, for their genetic data and DNA um, to analyze the environmental factors and um, yeah, the genetic and environmental factors that contribute to uh, autism. Um, so understandably, some people are thinking that sounds a little bit eugenicist um, because you're essentially trying to find um, find the cause of autism or kind of really just dive, dive into um, some of the kind of early concepts around autism diagnoses. Um, I actually started reporting on it before I was diagnosed autistic myself. I always had this understanding or this feeling that I might be. Um, I, I'm, in addition to being deaf, I am, oh God, I've got obsessive compulsive disorder. I am dyspraxic. Uh, and when I had that diagnosis of dyspraxia, the kind of terminology that they were using was mild dyspraxia with traits of Asperger's syndrome. Now, I didn't necessarily like that for two reasons. One, traits doesn't necessarily give me a definitive yes or no answer. You just said, oh, you might have it, you might not. Um, and also the fact that Asperger's syndrome has now been a... Um, the the, the, the the person that's named after Hans Asperger was a Nazi. And so the idea that, I, I don't know if that's ever in a medical document somewhere that I was mildly dyspraxic with traits of Asperger's syndrome, but I didn't necessarily like the fact that that was something that could be said to describe myself. So I was looking for something for a more definitive answer. And that came in September last year when I had the formal diagnosis. Um, and to be clear, I went privately for that. So I'm fully aware that I am privileged in that regard and not everyone can afford um, to have uh, to, to, ha to pursue a private diagnosis. I'm, I'm fully aware of that. Um, but no, I wasn't autistic at the time. Or I say I wasn't autistic. I wasn't diagnosed autistic when I began reporting on that. And I've, I've been reporting on that since. That's kind of been my, my passion project at the moment. And mm. as a result of that, um, and I think this kind of brings us back up to the present day, is that that led to me being approached by a book publisher that specializes in books on autism, asking if I wanted to write a book. And I sent over a proposal and the end result, after a bit of back and forth with editors to kind of really hammer out a kind of solid, rigid and uh, detailed idea, um, was a book proposal that then went to their boards and everything and has been accepted. So um, I now have until, uh, I now have a good, old, about, about, about a year to get cracking on this, on this book um, and uh, basically get, get writing. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's going to be looking at the, um, obviously aut aut autism research but more specifically, because there's so much distrust around it, uh, diving into the kind of wider philosophical questions about why, how, 
autism research lost the trust of the autistic community. And then as a kind of, um, as a kind of, because they, they do a lot of kind of books that, that can serve as guides or like how-to guides or self-help guides, those sorts of books. Um, I kind of really wanted to then kind of find a way to slide into that market by basically arguing, okay, they've lost the trust. How can they run it back? Um, so that's that's getting there. I haven't been writing as much as I probably should be at the moment, but that's um, that's my my current uh, current position alongside those those freelance roles. And uh, yeah, it's just my my life now to to kind of conclude that journey is to um, is to keep platforming deaf and disabled voices in my work as much as possible. And I'm I'm very privileged that I have several platforms in order to do that. And I remember seeing a lot of the stuff you were speaking about there, especially throughout the pandemic, like the main kind of like 2020 period. Mm. Um, there was a lot of it. I remember seeing it pop up. And I think it was also, was it the hashtag that was on Twitter, but is it verifying to say people it was last year? Yeah. That you was yeah, also no, that quite... was, I don't think it was, I don't think it was, no, I think, well, it, it was, it, it's still ongoing. I'm not really engaging with it as much as I probably should be. Um because there hasn't really been that much of an update with the verification policy, but no, that was also, yeah, that's, that's really good to bring up. So um, myself and um, another brilliant disabled activist, um, Poppy Field, um, we were kind of noticing that loads of people, disabled people uh, on Twitter were applying for uh, the relaunched verification process on Twitter um, and were being denied. They were, they, and, and, these weren't these weren't like um, these weren't people with with small followings. Uh, even though following doesn't necessarily dictate prominence um, or how popular you are, um, that just makes me just just saying that makes me feel a little bit uneasy. But um, you know, there were people there that were like disabled, um, prominent disabled activists, um, writers. Uh, um, I'm just trying to think, politicians, like big, big names in the community and they were being rejected. Yeah. So I, I was really, really, really curious as to why that is. Um, I really wanted to kind of, and again, it was just because like, I've always been interested in like investigative reporting. I always have. It's just the idea that you can kind of, you kind of toe that weird and interesting line between um being the journalist and almost being a detective. Um, mm. and, um, and so I, yeah, I was kind of having several conversations with a press officer at Twitter and there was a whole host of different things that were, that were being unveiled that, um, that, you know, you had to, you had to have set up a, a hashtag movement, which is ridiculous. Like you had to get a viral hashtag. Then they got rid of that, I think. And then you had to, as as is the case now, you have to have at least a minimum of a hundred thousand followers, um, which is absolutely ludicrous when you think about the fact that disabled people are marginalised yeah. people and therefore don't have the attention of of the majority of people because we are a minority, um, which is just yeah. ridiculous. Um, and so yeah, that that's really just been an ongoing hashtag that I. Um, that I've been kind of maintaining to, to highlight the fact whenever someone applies and is inevitably denied. I mean, I kept a list um, of 
well over 100 people um, who had applied and had been rejected. And of that list, there were politicians, there were campaigners, there were authors, there were people that had worked on high profile things all being turned down. Um, and I updated it recently. I think I, I had another look just to kind of see of those how many um, how many had been verified. And of those, mm. of those, I think if I remember rightly, it was, it was it was certainly in single digits, if not like early double digits. It wasn't of like the hundred. It was um, it was at least like I think probably about. I'm, I'm thinking nine, but it would it would probably be a little bit more, a little bit less. But it certainly wasn't an impressive mm. statistic out of the hundred or so people that I had I had identified, um, which is ridiculous. Um, yeah. And uh, and I, I to be clear and full disclaimer, I am verified. But the only way I was able to do that is through my journalism. I didn't get it in any way because of my activism or my work in the disability community. It was because I just so happened to, to be a journalist that had written for The Independent, The Guardian and uh, all of these other people and had an author bio or an author profile page that I could link to to say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a journalist that, that does some important work. But that's not fair. It shouldn't just be limited to disabled journalists. It should be open to any disabled activist. So, yeah, yeah that's that's something that has been ongoing as well. Yeah. So I, I could name a good handful of people, if not two, you know, from who I follow on Twitter. I think, you know, they've, they, they've got a you know, decent amount of followers and they get interaction. They, they make a difference. You know, mm. they start conversations. Yeah. And they're not verified. And then you see some people that are verified. I think, how does that work? <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. There's, 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 you know, there's, there's bot accounts. There's, um, there's just troll accounts and everything like that. Um, mm. I, I think I asked them about that and they were just saying that it was, um, it, it, it was, it sounded very much like an administrative error, but it, 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 it certainly does feel like a, a bit of a kick in the teeth in that regard that you have, yeah. um, you know, that, you can you can verify so many people from other communities, but then the disabled community is just complete or disability community is being underserved. Um, and some people say, oh, it's, it's just a blue tick. Is it really that important? But you have to think that with with that blue tick comes recognition. With that yeah. blue tick comes, um, removes the risk of impersonation, which can happen amongst disabled people. Um, you know, really nasty impersonation, bullying and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. And in my case, I'm not going to deny the fact that getting a getting a, a, a blue tick has certainly increased my visibility on a platform, um, brought in a few followers here and there and a few new opportunities. I'm not denying that at all. Um, and so when you think about the fact that there's a few people who could be verified and then fuss get more work out of it and, you know, disabled people, um, you know, some of us have, have limited income. Um, and so the idea that they could get more work by, by being verified for their platform that they've worked bloody hard to, to build up for free most of the time um, and, and they're being denied an opportunity to have a kind of a little boost to their platform um, and thus yeah. increase the work that they're doing. Um, you'd think for one, that would be in Twitter's best interest to 
platform and, and highlight amazing disabled activists on, on their platform. But also you'd think, you know, it, it, it's, it's unfair that these disabled activists are not are being denied an opportunity which could bring them more work and more income. Um, yeah. Because controversial opinion here, we should be paying disabled pe uh, disabled people for their for their activism and their work educating the majority. You know, unfortunately, we're still in a period where that hasn't really been recognised by by members of, of the non disabled community at the moment. But mm. hopefully, we'll get there eventually, whenever that might be. Hopefully, I'll uh, I'll, I'll get my blue jig one day. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where I feel like you'd. Um, if it was a different community, mm. uh, you know, with say like celebrities or public figures, whatever you want to call them, who actually say, would well, I feel like you get a different response from the everyday person on Twitter? I, I, I don't know if it's just a negative view to have, or I don't know, it's just how I, that's my good feeling of the whole kind of situation. So it's, you know, it's only fair and makes sense in all the ways you've mentioned to just. Do, do it basically for, for the right people obviously not just throw them out like it's nothing but do it because it's only going to benefit everyone and you know it's not going to doesn't cost anything doesn't hurt anyone exactly yeah so you know so one question I have kind of that kind of I can't remember the word kind of escapes me but at what point for you did kind of your passion for journalism and then obviously the fact that you have a disability was it always that kind of thing that those two would come together or was it purely just off the back of the multiple things you did and then naturally it's eventually they just like right well I've, if i'm going to write about anything it's going to be this because i have first hand first hand experience of yeah. that um that's a really good question um i think yeah so i i always knew um I think I always knew that I wanted to be a writer and journalist um, from a very young age. Um, and I, I think I probably took it a bit more seriously in the teenage years. And as I say, in the start of the teenage years, I, I, uh, I was told that I might benefit from hearing aids. So um, I think, yeah, I think there was, so one of the things that, yeah, okay. So one of the things that, um, kind of happened um, around the time I was trying to consider a career in, in journalism was I had a meeting with a careers advisor and I, I can't thank that careers advisor enough for what what that um, conversation led to. But when, they, when I told them I was considering a career in journalism or in the media industry, one of the things that they said was really important and worth doing is maintaining a blog. Um, which I did. And uh, in 2012, um, I set up a, a, a WordPress blog, um, pretentiously titled uh, The Life of a Thinker, um, because I thought that sounded really smart and erudite and profound. It, it, uh, it, it just made me look a bit like an egotist, but that is what it is. Um, so I, I, I did that. And then, yeah, that was just a place for me to just share my, my general, general life to begin with. Um, a lot of those posts were just absolutely nonsensical, but eventually, because deafness was such a big part of my life and is a big part of my life still, um, a lot of the posts were kind of talking about that subject. 
Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think that really just, that, that kind of really, um, that just kind of really fell into place in that regard to answer that question. But then, yeah, I think there was just also the fact that, um, yeah, it, just, it, it kind of goes back to that thing you hear a lot of in writing that just makes you, just make me roll, roll your eyes a little bit. Um, because I, you know, I remember when I was kind of looking into doing writing books and becoming an author and all that sort of stuff. And you'd hear the advice shared around every so often, which is write about what you know. And I sit there and think, what? So if I wanted to, as I did for a good period, if I wanted to write a crime novel, does that mean that I have to know what it's like to kill someone? Because I don't, I, 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 I'd, rather, I'd quite like to not do that. Um, you know, just, I'd quite like to live the rest of my life as a free citizen if I, if, if, if I can. Um, so that, that never really, that never really, that never really uh, stuck with me, that advice. But that being said, I, I knew that, um, and it was also, I suppose, and, and, and it's not really much the case now, because there are a few new identities that I've had since then, like being asexual, that I maybe don't write about as much now, because I, I wouldn't want to be seen as a voice on the subject when I'm still very much learning about it myself. But I had a bit of leeway at that time because there really wasn't that many deaf bloggers in the community. There may be like a handful of others, but what I had was um, I was able to kind of share my experiences as I was learning about um, my experiences and as I was learning about the community that I was a part of, um, which maybe wasn't the, the bestest of, of, of decisions in that, you, you know, you might have, you might have an opinion that in that time since has since changed or maybe doesn't align with where you are now. Um, but no, it was it was a it was a platform that um, that enabled me to kind of undertake that learning. But also, you know, when I'm when I'm asked to speak at panels and talk about um, talk to student journalists about getting a career in the industry, um, I, I always sing blogging's uh, praises because I. I used my blog as a platform to write opinion pieces. And I, I did that until I got the point where I was confident in writing opinion pieces and could pitch. And I did. And I, I now get quite a lot of commissions every so often. Um, excuse me. I get a lot of um, commissions now to write opinion pieces about subjects. Um, mm. uh, and most of them are deafness, but sometimes they branch out. And then, you know, that that blog helped me perfect that area of journalism. I wasn't necessarily confident with features um, and those sort of, um, that sort of style of article, but I used my blog as a, as a kind of, uh, uh, as, a, as a testing ground and a place to make mistakes freely. Um, and I got better at that. And, you know, I, then, I now use my blog to write more comedic style of writing, which, um, which has then helped me when I'm writing articles for the Indy 100. So it's, yeah, and I, I, I have this kind of really um, eye roll type phrase that I throw out into the world, but it is true. It's find your own space to create without constraint. And what I mean by that is, and I think it, 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 it can benefit anyone. Um, and that is to have a platform or have a, 
an outlet, it could even just be a notepad, to create in whatever way that you want to create and, ha and have that creative freedom, knowing that you can make mistakes, knowing that you can mess up, knowing that you um, don't have prying eyes looking over your work. You can just create it for yourself. Mm. But then in order to do that, you can then learn and hone your craft. If that's something you want to do, obviously, if you want to just do it for a hobby, you can. Um, but if you want to um, perfect it, then that is one way of doing it. And the, and the blog definitely helped with that. So, yeah, it, it, it I, I, I'm quite in shock sometimes, um, and I think I am when answering this question, about just how easily my life kind of fit into place and just kind of, it just felt like one thing fell into place, then the next thing fell into place, and it all just snowballed to where I am now. Um, mm. I could kind of try and give you a nice little narrative, which I hope I've done um, already, but it's it, it still just kind of blows my mind that a led to B and then B led to C and it led to where I am now. Yeah. To be perfectly honest with you. Yeah, I think that's that's when you can kind of look back at all the things that you're doing, the achievements, the things that you've completed and the um movements you've created that it kind of not that you know, you don't need certain things to validate you, but it does validate you in a way, if you know what I mean. Like makes you feel like everything that you've done is worth it and you know i know people say as long as you're happy with your work and the things that you do that sort of matters but when it goes a step further than that and you're seeing your work that you're doing making a difference to people that you don't even know because mm. that adds that extra layer to it well ex exactly um you know they um there's always this phrase, isn't there? Where like, you know, love, love what you do and you never work a day in your life and all that sort of stuff. But it, mm. it, is, it is true. And it's, it's really nice that with my position, which I'm very privileged to be in, I'm not only satisfying that need to write, that kind of innate desire to, to put words on a, on a, on a page um, that has always been always been a dream of mine and always been something that motivates me there's that there's being able to do that whilst also platforming marginalized people and then it's also doing that whilst by platforming them spreading awareness and education um so it's really just i've really found a, a beautiful um kind of co uh, co collaboration or connection which enables me to um do what I've always dreamt of doing um, in, in the form of writing, but also writing about a subject that is so close to my heart as well. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's immensely fulfilling, absolutely. Definitely. So a couple of questions that I'd like to kind of round up on is something that I ask everyone. And to be honest, you've kind of answered these first couple already in the conversation we have for yeah. last time and it's your kind of personal and professional goals targets ambitions whatever you want to call them obviously you already said about just generally carrying on doing what you do and your book but is there anything else that kind of in there that you'd like to reach or achieve that you've always had a, a kind of an idea of um i think i yeah so the, the book obviously has always has always been it's always been a, a, a dream of mine. It's always it's always just been a dream of mine to see 
my name in print uh, on the front cover of a book for sure. Um, that's always that's always been a a, a professional ambition, um, and I think yeah, I think there's always been like a career goal in the sense of where my journalism goes next. I think I've always, if you asked me a few years back, I'd say that I wanted to work for one specific publication. Um, that's changed now. And I think it used to, it's now more, I want to be a political journalist. And then it's now moved to, if, if somewhere will have me, I'll happily be a, a dedicated um, like disability correspondent um, responding, mm. on, responding on disability. So yeah, there's, I'm happy with where I am now, to be completely clear with you, uh, and to be completely mm. honest with you. Um, but I'd be lying if I said that I wasn't um, wasn't kind of still eyeing up the possibility or still eyeing up roles which would see me um, kind of um, report for a more mainstream outlet yeah. on on that subject of disability. Um, you know, I, I do a bit of it here and there for all these outlets that I write for currently, but it's not the main focus. Um, and I'd, and some would say, well, do you want to put kind of all your eggs in one basket and be seen as a um, as only someone that can write on on disability and on deafness? Um, I haven't always. Um, I you know, and, and even so, there is um, there is the opportunity when writing about disability to really write about something else to which deafness can be like a secondary thing like it yeah. isn't gone completely but it's it's no longer at the, at the forefront so that's the professional goal and I think a personal goal um I think I think one uh one that I've kind of I'm kind of working more towards is, is certainly independence I've got a fair amount of it um just in terms of the job that I'm in and uh kind of the, the the confidence and the independence that that, uh, that that requires of you um but there's a few kind of personal um goals that i'd very much like to reach in the near future um kind of moving out getting my own place um really kind of making a life for myself because i currently still live with my parents so yeah no that's 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 something i'm still kind of working towards it's it's certainly not something that i see happening overnight it wouldn't um, it's still a long way off, but that's it. Oh, excuse me. In recent conversations, that's been the sort of thing that, um, and, and recent conversations with family, but also my partner and, yeah. and others. That's really kind of been the, um, the kind of main personal project that I've been working on alongside my professional projects. If that makes sense, like that's the mm. that's the that's the uh, the next kind of goal for me because uh yeah i i think that will yeah. uh that will that will be a, a the next step really for me on on this journey that is my life <laughs> <laughs> i suppose both for that kind of stuff like moving out you have to be happy professionally and personally for that to work as well so like i said it's not something that's going to happen overnight and when it yeah. does happen you know it is the right time i suppose exactly yeah absolutely and one final question that I ask everyone, I kind of put everyone on the spot, really. I should I should mention it at the start so you have some time to think, but I forget. <laughs> so um, if you could speak to a younger person um, who is disabled in 
whether they are deaf or blind or any other disability and is wanting to get into your area, your industry, um, or even if it was a message to your younger self, what would that be exactly? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> that is a big question. Um, <laughs> um, I think, yeah, so it kind of, it kind of sees me repeat what I've said before, but I, I will try and kind of tie them all up into one neat narrative. And I think that is to one, um, create your own space, uh, find your own space to create that constraint. So really just, um, and to be clear, you don't have to do this. Um, I know some people um, may not feel comfortable kind of screaming and shouting from the rooftops that they have X diagnosis or that they, um, they have these experiences and, and whatnot. You know, disability is an incredibly personal thing. Um, mm. And, you know, it's, in, yes, for so many of us, it can kind of, it can naturally force us to be self-advocates because the world is an ableist place and we have to, we have to speak up for ourselves. We're kind of forced to. Um, but yeah, if you are in, in the position where you want to be able to talk about it, and I think anyone to an extent would want to talk about it whatever way that may present itself even if it is just if you come into if you come into contact with someone um and an access barrier presents itself um that you mention it to someone uh it doesn't necessarily have to be on the scale that i do where i'm talking to thousands of people or whatever um yeah you you there is there is certainly um there are certainly creative outlets out there that you can use to really kind of perfect that and be creative with it and the benefit of doing that is that you then attract a community um, and that community often though it can also be those outside of it is often other people that share your diagnosis uh, and or the wider disabled community um, and and so I, I, I think I think to kind of really put it into a way that's really kind of profound <laughs> is to say that like there's there's a lot of there's a real benefit and impact to creativity within the disabled community um, because not only are you using art uh, in its many forms to convey a lived experience that can be difficult uh, for those outside that lived experience to understand otherwise. Um, not only that, but in sharing that work, not only are you providing that education, but you are also finding other people who share that creativity or share that passion or share that desire for change. And when you come together like that, um, not only do you find new friends, uh, new communities, um, new support networks, um, but you 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 find uh, you, you know you find a a wider movement that makes you feel like you, you're part of something. It makes you feel like you belong. Um, you know, for some of us, that could that could be a real a real like personal struggle to, to to overcome to begin with you know the feeling that oh you know 
there, there maybe isn't that many people out there that share my lived experience or there aren't really you know there's is it just me um which which happens with a lot of our kind of marginalized identities you know uh in the case for me with my sexuality it kind of felt like oh um is this normal is this is this something that other people experience and so yeah the, uh, i think I, what i would say is is i'd really say to my younger self or to anyone that's like um a younger disabled person kind of really kind of stepping their toes into, uh, into or their feet into the waters of um the disability community is to really because I think we all have a desire to create in whatever form. Uh, it's just kind of instinctual. Harness that and um, share it with the world and a community will come eventually. And with that community, you can find friendship, support and solidarity. That's a, that is a, it's almost as had it written down there. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't put it better but yeah um that, that is it <laughs> you've, 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 you've finished my podcast well I'll credit. End it there. <laughs> so yeah i mean thank you uh leon for spending this past hour and a hour and a half or so with me and talking about yourself it's been fascinating and um i've actually been wanting to get you on for quite a while um kind of ever since i started this journeys thing and focusing on disability with my podcast so um yeah it's been a it's been a pleasure to have you on and um yeah so if anyone wants to find you i mean i'm sure everyone listening knows who you are <laughs> anyway um where can they go yeah um i've, I've kept it nice and easy on most social media platforms so you can find me uh pretty much by searching Liam Odell UK. That's L-I-A-M-O-D-E-L-L-U-K. Uh, that's on Twitter. You can probably find that on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on Instagram. Um, and then if, if, if not, you can always reach out to me and uh, we can discuss ways to, to collaborate or ways to kind of support the work that you do um, via my website, which is just simply liamoodell.com, which is the same as, as what I've just said, minus the, the UK. Um, and yeah, you can reach out yes, to me on there and uh, find, find the articles and the work that I do on there, but also just like, like I say, reach out and, and connect because it's always great connecting with with other disabled people and connecting and that includes yourself jamie so thank you very much for having me thank you and yeah that's, i strongly urge people to to follow you on twitter's my main platform and, and the stuff you put out is uh is fascinating and you're just an enjoyable person to to follow <laughs> thank you very much a <laughs> bit of a skin for me as well um this is one of the first podcasts um that you'll be listening to and my new website is live I've, I suppose is that, is that the word I don't know um and so if you want to go over there where from this at least from this podcast on um there will be transcriptions um I am working on getting it for all my previous episodes as well so give me some time and hopefully by over time I'll get them all up on the website um as it was kind of the usual stuff you'd find in there also had a bit of a change problem on Twitter so if you want to follow the Twitter account it's tbl media uk i think it was <laughs> it's great for me just forgetting um so yeah all of that good stuff check out the uh, 
uh, last podcast I did with Lucy Webster. It would have been that comes out before this one. And um, yeah, thank you, Liam, for coming on. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Hope you enjoyed it just as much as I have done talking to Liam. And we'll catch you very soon. Thank you.